0: Well, good morning, Chapel Hill. Good to see so many of you here. I'm assuming the ones who aren't here are laying sick in bed because, gosh, man, what, what a season of illness it has been recently. It's been pretty incredible how widespread and people are dropping like flies. It's amazing. And I appreciate your prayers. As, as you know, Pastor Mark was sick a couple weeks ago and I was as well. And I know some of you were praying for us, and so thank you for that, really appreciate that. I'm doing much better now. I have a little bit of a cough, so you'll excuse me if I cough once or twice while I'm preaching, but I hope you'll be patient with me in that. Let me tell you some of my story regarding the recent illness I had. About two weeks ago, on a Thursday, I woke up, and I was coughing, and I had aching, and a little bit of a fever, and all the symptoms that you would expect to to come with the flu right well i wasn't going to play around with that so i went right in to prompt care i went into urgent care and i wanted to find out if i had the flu so i asked them to swab me any of you guys ever been swabbed for the flu yeah so you know what that's like right okay so if, if you haven't been swabbed for the flu let me tell you they take a swab they put it up your nose and then they start stabbing your brain because apparently the flu virus likes to hang out in the brain. I don't know. It's really an unpleasant experience, let me tell you. So they, they stabbed my brain a few times. They went out and I waited 10 minutes. They came back, and they said, hey, negative, no flu, you're fine. Well, I mean, you got to have a virus, but go home, rest, you'll be fine. It's just a virus. Don't worry about it. So I did. I went home. I rested for several days. Well, that was Thursday. Saturday night, I went to bed with a 102-degree fever, I wake up in the morning, and I'm worse than ever. I wake up with vertigo and muscle spasms. And it turns out I hadn't been watching my fluids. So I was severely dehydrated. So back to urgent care, I go just to make sure I'm okay. I'm rehydrating, doing my fluids, all that good stuff. So they swab me again. They stab my brain some more. And it turns out, it comes back, I have influenza A. Swine flu, basically, basically. Wow. All right. So that explains how bad I'm feeling. So, you know, actually, it turns out that test that they give, the swab, only works 60% of the time. Great. Good to know, huh? You know, it's funny. It's really disappointing to get good news from a doctor that I didn't have the flu, and then to come back and realize that they were wrong. It wasn't good news at all. It was bad news. I had the flu. This morning, I want to do the opposite. I want to do for you I want to walk through a diagnosis that may be not so good news for you and then I want to give you good news I want to give you some of the best news that scripture has for us some of the most reassuring and assuring promises that God has given us here in Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 by the way is has to be my favorite chapter in the Bible has to be it is one of my favorite chapters and this is probably my favorite passage in the whole chapter so we're we're looking at romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 so read with me in your bibles it says so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if you live by the spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body you will live This is the word of the Lord. So Father, we do pray this morning that you would illuminate this word for us. I pray that I would not be a distraction. If I'm coughing, Lord, take away any of that from me so that, Lord, in this morning we only hear what you have to say for us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So these two Beginning verses, verses 12 and 13, are essentially a summary of what Pastor Mark and Pastor Ellis have been preaching these last two weeks. In sum, what Paul is saying is that there are two ways that we can go. We can go the way of death or the way of life. And the way of life actually involves what Paul calls putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but when he says this, how does he say that we do this? Anybody notice how he says to do this? So go ahead and shout it out if you see it. By the Spirit. That's right. I wonder if you were reading that, if he sort of just skipped over that bit. If he focused on putting to death the deeds of the body, the work that we're supposed to do, and missed this little clause by the Spirit. I think this is so essential. I think that what Paul is saying that we are to do is actually impossible to do without doing it by the Spirit. But here I begin to to kind of bring out our condition, our diagnosis, the problem that we're beginning to address here, and that is that we tend to think that we are at this alone. We tend to kind of miss or ignore the work of the Spirit that we are to participate in, and, and we imagine that this is, this is kind of our thing to do, sort of a bootstrap mentality. I think that in, in a lot of Christian circles, even in ours, I think the tendency is to believe that we got our get out of hell free card, salvation. But then most of us live in hell until we get to heaven. We experience toil, torment, work. And that's what we expect the Christian life, to be. One of the greatest conflicts of our time was World War II, perhaps of all time. World War II was devastating, and one of the ways that it was particularly devastating was in the effect it had on families. Hundreds of thousands of orphans came out of World War II. We don't really even have great statistics for for how many children were affected by that conflict, but I found that in Germany alone, 300,000 orphans were created by this war. As late as 1982, they were still putting posters up in public spaces, subways, hospitals, with, with faces of these orphans, with things like, who am I? Where am I from? What is my name? And these posters would include captions underneath some of these names, captions like this one, She was found in a baby carriage on April 3rd or 4th, 1945, at 45 Spiedelgasse, Pressburg. In the baby carriage were a damask blanket with embroidered monogram, MK, and a baptism picture of pink silk with silver inscription. Heartbreaking to imagine these families completely devastated and these children left alone. But that was the reality of World War II, One of the interesting things about this is that because there was such an influx of orphans into Western society, psychologists began to study and to understand more about what the effects of deprivation and loss were on these children. And they began to identify specific behaviors that orphans would exhibit, maybe when they went into an adopted home or even on their own. They they talked about something called self-soothing, so when these children had to deal with things, they had to find ways to cope with life and they found that these kids would have repetitive compulsive behaviors like thumb sucking or twirling the hair or rocking. And these are ways that they would self-soothe to deal with the experiences they had had. They found that some of these kids would do what was called self-parenting. They'd been so independent for so long and they'd had to figure out life all by themselves, that they would parent themselves. And when they came into adopted homes, they would do things like teach their new parents how to do stuff like, all right, mommy, this is how you should do makeup or this is how you should do the laundry. They would self parent. And some of these kids had what was called what they called a internal locus of control. Where in other words, they determined that they were gonna keep their environment safe by controlling as best as they could their circumstances. So they would do things like when they went to dinner, they would hide food. Or they would steal things when they didn't need to and they could just ask. Now here's what's interesting and fascinating to me. Is I see some of these same behaviors in us Christians. We who are saved do some of these things, right? We we are some of the people who self-soothe. Either we, you know, we do things like binge-watch TV or binge-eat or maybe some more insidious things like we look for sex or gossiping to soothe ourselves. We are the ones who self-parent. We have been independent for so long that we think that we have to figure life out on our own. So we tell God how it is or we tell each other how it is. And I think we have huge issues with control Either we try and religiously control our environment by creating laws and ways of behavior that we think will please God, or we do it in a secular way and we try to do the right things, join the right club, look the right way, dress the right way, say the right things so that we can control our environments. So many of us are spiritual orphans. Spiritual orphans because we think that we are alone at this. That this life of, uh, of Christianity that we are to pursue is something that's up to us. And so we live like that. We live in all the ways that orphans do. And we need to heed the promise of Jesus and what he says in John chapter 14. This is his promise. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you and this is an essential premise of what paul is saying in these first two verses in this passage that this this way of life that we are to pursue is a way of the spirit that there is a dynamic work that the spirit does for us in us That we are to experience as the way of life of being a follower of Jesus. And I actually believe that we experience this. And and just think about this as I I talk about these examples of how the Spirit works. How many of you have ever felt convicted about something? Not guilty, because guilt is something that paralyzes and, and weighs you down, but convicted, which leads you to life and to change. That's the Holy Spirit. How many of you have ever um, been reminded of something from Scripture? Out of the blues, just been reminded of some truth of Scripture in a circumstance. How many of you have ever had some revelation, some new way of understanding who Jesus is? How many of you have ever had old desires just go away and be replaced by new, redeemed desires? Those are things that the Holy Spirit does in us. And the Bible says that we can quench the Holy Spirit, that we can ignore or not listen to what he is doing in our lives. And so often we do that because we believe that we're at this alone. We believe that we are spiritual orphans. So that's the diagnosis I want to present to you this morning. Does that resonate with you? It resonates with me I know I do that sometimes. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. We're not orphans. We're not orphans at all. We are sons and daughters of God. And this is what Paul begins to talk about. In verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It's a simple statement. But it's really quite profound. Notice that he says, all, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. He's making a connection here between the work of the Spirit and our status as children of God. And there really is something really quite majestic and profound in this, and I kind of need to to step back and explain a little bit of it to you. And to do so, I want to talk about the story of salvation now, this, I want to talk about this in a way that perhaps you've never heard explained in this way before. And what I'm about to say is really profound mysterious stuff. And I want to try and say it as simply as possible. But it really is, it is marvelous, the story of salvation. That story begins with three people. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before time... Before our universe existed, these three people were. And they were a community. They lived in perfect harmony. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the love between them is the Holy Spirit. And there they are. Before anything else existed, there they are. Perfect harmony. Perfect community. Perfect unity. They are the original family. And even though they are three unique persons, they are one because of their unity. Because of their perfect unity, they are one. And when we say God is love, that's what we mean. His essentially who he is, even before anything else. He is love. And so in the overflow of his love, overflowing, he decides to create So God makes the world. He makes the universe. And in Genesis it says, let us make man in our image. And mankind, human beings, are the pinnacle of his creation. But the overflow of his love comes at a cost. Because God knew mankind would rebel, would reject him and his love. So in the fullness of time, the Father, who loves the Son, sends His Son. In Philippians 2, it says that even though the Son was equal with the Father, He did not grasp that equality, but instead emptied Himself and took on human nature. Now this, this is a mystery, that God would become man. Man. That the Son, who is fully God, would also become fully a human being. That human being is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he died for you and for me. And then he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he sits exalted at, at the right hand of God. Now, that's not the end of the story. Here's here's what's magnificent about this. Something is different now. There is a human being in the party. There's a human being in the community. Jesus has taken on the nature of a human being. And because he is human, we can be joined with him. The work of the Holy Spirit is to join us, we who are also human beings to Jesus so that what is true of Jesus now becomes true of us. His perfect humanity becomes our perfect humanity and his sonship becomes our sonship. That's the story of salvation. That's the project that God is at, the work that he is at you know, I tried to describe that as simply as possible, but if you understand this, it should blow our minds. This is something marvelous, incredible, and wonderful. And I think one of the reasons why so often we can be spiritual orphans is because we listen to the story of salvation and we only think that there's a, 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 it's a, a sliver of what it actually is. We only think that it's about that piece of God saving us from our sins. But God is after so much more than that. He is after transforming us, turning us into superhumans, into children of God. And if you don't believe me, let me read to you a litany of scriptures. In 2 Peter 1, verse 4, Peter says that we are partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Think about that. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 1 John 3 verse 2, he says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And the words of Jesus himself in John 17, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He's speaking to his Father. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The love of the Father for the Son becomes our love as well. Now now you can understand why the Spirit is so essential to what Paul is talking about here. Because we cannot be transformed. We can't bootstrap ourselves into this. What the Bible is describing must take a radical work of the Spirit. It must involve this mysterious work of being joined and united with Jesus so that we also may be sons of God, daughters of God. Now, Paul uses the illustration of adoption to kind of encapsulate all of this. He says that we have been adopted. Adoption is interesting because in the culture that Paul came from, the Jewish culture, it was very rare. Adoption didn't happen in the Jewish culture, but it happened very commonly in the Roman culture. In Rome, uh, the, the family structure the way it worked was that the father had ultimate authority. He basically owned his household. As a matter of fact, it was, it was legal for fathers to put to death anybody in their household. That's how much authority he had. It rarely happened. But that's the way it was. The father ruled his household. And so some men didn't have children. And so very commonly, they would adopt a son from another family. It happened very frequently so that they could have an inheritor, someone who would receive everything that they had. And so they would adopt someone and that person would leave their family and come into this other person's family. And they would take their name and all the family rights and responsibilities and privileges of that adopted father. It was a full status change. They didn't really do adoption of orphans, by the way. That wasn't as common. It was really about moving from one family to another. Very famous adoptee in Roman history was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was adopted by Julius Caesar. He was actually his nephew. But Julius Caesar didn't have any children, any male heirs. And so he adopted Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus became the heir of the Roman Empire. And that's how he was emperor when Jesus was born. By the way, if you were an orphan in Roman times, what was more common for your fate was not adoption, it was actually slavery. If you were an orphan, there were very good chances that you would become a slave. So now we see this this picture of of adoption that that Paul has laid before us, and we can understand how it's actually a, a really perfect picture of this work of transformation that the spirit is doing us paul is saying you're not orphans who've been picked off a street to be work for a master to live in fear you're orphans who've been picked off a street who've been given a new identity a new status with all the privileges and the responsibilities of this new family of god that you are in that's what adoption is And it's not just that, but Paul wants to talk about the kind of relationship we have with our adopted father. So he says, we cry out with the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. Abba is a word you might be familiar with. It's not the Swedish rock band. That's not what I'm talking about. No, Abba was a word that Jesus used when he talked to his father. It's Aramaic. For father, it was simply the, the, the simplest syllables an infant could utter, Abba, Abba. And it's also a word filled with meaning, intimacy. The best equivalent that we have to it today in our language is daddy. When my son, Reed, greets me when I come home, very often, he'll run to me saying, Daddy, Daddy. He'll have his arms out. And in In his greeting, there's so much wrapped up into that. There is joy. There is love. There is security. There is peace. Now, Reed doesn't have to worry about self-soothing. When he needs soothing, he comes to his daddy or his mommy, and he gets a hug. Reed doesn't have to parent himself. When he needs to learn something... He gets help from his parents. Reed doesn't have to have an internal locus of control. He doesn't have to worry about controlling his environment. He can trust his daddy. So when we see the word Abba, that's what's wrapped up into that word. That's what it means. So it seems that we are to become like children, as Jesus says. You know, when we think about fathers, naturally we think of our own fathers. I think about my father. My dad died when I was 11. And I remember I only cried really on two occasions the night that he passed away, and then at the funeral when my aunt hugged me. Those are the only two times I really mourned my dad. I remember about a year after. He passed away, and someone was commenting, "Isn't it so sad that your dad has passed away?" And I remember <laughs> kind of shrugging it off and just saying, "No, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I'm fine." I was 13. I was not fine. I'd lost someone who, for better or for worse, would have shaped me, would have been a potential source of security for me as a teenager, when they were gone. And I didn't really wrestle or grapple with that or even really understand that until I was 20. Something happened to me then. At that time, I was living in Texas, and I was working for a missions agency, and I did the night shift on on the phone banks. And during the day, I I pretty much could do whatever I wanted. And very often, I would go out to a nearby grove of trees, and I would sit and read my Bible and journal, And one of those days, I went out to that grove of trees, and I don't know what I was reading or what I was thinking, but seemingly out of the blue, I began to weep. And I felt this profound sense of loss and of grief. And at first, I didn't understand it. And I couldn't stop. So time came for me to go to work, and I was still weeping, tears streaming down my face, and I went to work I sat at my desk unable to do anything because I was just racked with grief, sobbing tears coming down my face and I had to ask God, what are you doing here because this isn't me and I realized that what God was doing was he was revealing to me that all those years as a teenager I had bottled up my grief, I hadn't reckoned with the loss and so it was like I had filled this big bag of grief up And God was just popping it. And it was just oozing out. I am so grateful for that experience. I am so grateful that God let me release that. Because I was on my way to being a spiritual orphan. I was on my way to thinking that life, even my Christian life, was really about me figuring it out for myself and doing it on my own. But that was the beginning of a journey for me, first of all, to understand the yearning I had for a father, to kind of open that up for me and help me to explore that. But second of all, it helped me to begin to realize the work of the Spirit in my life. And here's what's beautiful about that. I recognized that when I saw the activity of the Spirit working in me, like he was then, I realized that when the Spirit is at work in me, it's evidence of a Father who cares. When you witness the Spirit at work in you, it is evidence of the Father who cares. Because the Spirit at work transforming us is turning us into sons and daughters of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we would be welcomed into the relationship that the Father has with His Son. Man, don't you want that? Don't you yearn for that, that security, that kind of love, that kind of peace? Don't we all yearn for that? I believe that, that we need that. We yearn for that kind of security. And what a marvelous, wonderful thing that in the work of the Holy Spirit, in the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that mysterious work, we have that security. It's beautiful. Abba, Father, is a prayer. It's a prayer. You know, when we kind of look at ourselves and we want to identify whether we are spiritual orphans, that's one of the ways that we can do that, is to look at your prayer life. Do you pray at all? Is it non-existent? Or maybe when you pray, it's sort of perfunctory, like God's putting his stamp on whatever you're doing because you're self-parenting. Maybe when you pray, it's appeasing because you can't believe in a God who loves and you feel like when you pray, you need to appease God. But maybe the way that Paul is telling us to pray is to simply pray, Abba, Father, Daddy. Let's pray right now. Father God, Daddy, I thank you for the work of your Spirit that transforms us. I thank you for the love of the Father that washes over us. Lord, help us to be people who are like children, who understand implicitly how we can trust you, how we are secure in your love, Lord, who walk in the identity of a new family. Help us to be that people. Lord, we know that we cannot do it by our own power. So Lord, reveal to us when we are acting like spiritual orphans, change that part of us so that we trust you and you only. I am grateful for your spirit, Lord. I am grateful for the way that you work in us because it reminds us that we are loved, that we are sons and daughters of you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.